Hey, did Aaron fire you up? Wow, that was inspiring. I felt like we just could have, we could close the service after what Aaron said. That was so inspiring. I want to sign up for that. I want to say welcome back to the Managua team. So great to have you back. We're we're uh, looking to either the first or second Sunday of September to have an opportunity to uh, give our grace stories uh, from our trips to East Asia and Managua, and so many lives and. So many churches were touched, and all of you were a part of that. I was part of the East Asia team, so I personally missed a couple of weeks. And uh, we got back and then went on vacation with our adult children and uh, missed another couple of weeks. By the way, for you younger parents, you know, our adult kids, they're 29 through 23, and they get along so well. And it's such fun traveling with them. And uh, I know that's not always quite the case when they're a little younger. And uh, we used to have long strategy sessions on how are we going to negotiate the van ride, for example. And uh, I just want to give you hope. It does get better, parents. Um, but we're glad. Louise and I are glad to get back and to settle in. We're excited about this brand new year. And uh, there's lots of neat things happening a um, number of you are stepping up and doing new things. We rejoice in that. It's a sign of life. Healthy things grow. And we rejoice to see growth taking place in many of you. Well, we've been traveling through this Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel covers a dynamic period of time in Israel's history. Now, prior to this era that we're in, remember the people of God were scattered throughout the promised land. They gathered and identified as tribes and families. They were led by judges. Remember, that's the period we covered last summer in the book called Judges. That was a time of terrible moral chaos with personal and family wreckage in its wake. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the conclusion of Judges leaves the people in desperate need of an authentically spiritual king, one who could unite the tribes and lead them back to God. And so Samuel was the last of those judges, and his book tells the story of their search for that king. Last Sunday, Rich outlined why Israel's first king, King Saul, failed. Saul was the king the people demanded. His name literally means to ask. He won the people's choice of words. And because they wanted a king like their neighbors, they used their neighbor's value as criteria. Give us a king like our neighbors, they persisted. And this grieved God. It grieved him because Israel's whole purpose was to be a called out people. They were to be different because their way of life was being shaped by God. In asking for a king like their neighbor, they were losing their identity. And they were betraying their mission. Though Samuel warned them, they persisted until God relented and gave them the king they wanted. And as Saul's reign unfolded, his true character was revealed. Pride, dishonesty... Partial obedience and blame shifting proved to be his eventual undoing. 
But of course, the story does not end there. Even while Saul was making disastrous decisions and leading the nations astray, even while that was going on in the power centers of Israel, in a lonely pasture with dirty sheep as his companions, God was working. And he was raising up a future king. And that leads us to our text for today. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 16. In the Bible in front of you, it's page 238. And as to its relevance for us today, this scripture will help us to answer this question. How can God use an ordinary person to do extraordinary things? How can God use an ordinary person to do extraordinary things? Maybe you've asked that question. How can God use me? Or is it possible for me to discover my purpose? Is it possible for me to ever feel the sweet pleasure of being used by God to help others? Is it possible for my life to really make an impact on people even beyond the scope of this life? This story will help us answer those questions. So, with that purpose, let's take a moment and stop and pray and ask God by His Holy Spirit to help us. Okay, pray with me. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask you, through the power of your Spirit, to give us eager and learning and expectant hearts this morning, that we might receive what you want to give to us as we learn your story and intersect it, Father, with our story and our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. Okay, so the answer to that first question, look at verse 1 in chapter 16. How can God use an ordinary person to do extraordinary things? Here's the first point. Be ready to move when God speaks. Be ready to move when God speaks. Verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Samuel and Saul had developed a closeness. Even though Saul was not the best choice, Samuel still held out hope for him. Samuel still poured out his life for him. Samuel had mentored Saul. And now it's over. It's over. Saul's end has been determined. Now Saul's going to resist. He's going to hang on to his position as long as he can. All the way through the end of 1 Samuel. But his doom and the loss of his kingdom and the ruin of his legacy is a certain thing. And Samuel is left only to mourn for him. 
And that's where he is when God, God steps in. God steps in and intervenes and he speaks to Samuel and he says, Samuel, stop. Stop. It's time to move forward. Now, God does not disregard his, our tears. He never does. But in his mercy, God knows when it is time for us to move forward. From a young boy, Samuel had developed a listening ear for the Lord. And even in his grief, he discerns God's voice that calls him out of his grief to the next step. Have you ever experienced a disappointment in ministry? You're so excited in the beginning. You start with high hopes and you pray and you plan. And then, and then, and then, nobody shows up to your event. Or the person that you led to Christ and that you mentored and poured your heart out for walks away from the faith. Or the hurting person that you've tried to help, that you've made sacrifices for, they grow worse after you begin to help them. And then you become the issue. You are blamed for the new wave of downfall. I know how it feels. I've been there for each of those. I've tasted that bitterness. And maybe this morning, because of disappointment, you've checked out from serving God. Like Samuel, have you developed the ability to hear God, a listening ear? The voice that at just the right time, aware of all of your individual circumstances, says it's time to move forward. It's time to re-engage because I am your hope. I am your reward. Ministry disappointments can be redemptive. They can shape us and help us remain humble. They can ground us in the reality that God takes immense pleasure in our hearts to serve Him. Not only in the outcome of our service. So this is the first point. This is the first answer to our question. Be ready to move when God speaks. Okay? Now look at verse 2. Let's move forward in our story. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. And I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me whom I declare to you. It's pretty interesting. Why should Samuel be afraid of Saul killing him? Well, it's pretty obvious. Saul will not tolerate any potential rival. And this is your first clue to see that Saul is in all-out protection mode. He will not accept Samuel's verdict. He will not accept the Lord's verdict that he has lost his kingdom. So God gives Samuel an out. He gives him a cover. He doesn't lie, but neither does Samuel disclose everything. Look at the next verse, verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. 
So why are the elders trembling? Well, if you were here last week, perhaps they heard the news of what Samuel did to King Agag. But Samuel reassures them he follows God's instructions to a T, as much as they've been revealed to him. And this sets the stage for our second point. Our second point is this, is to measure what's in the heart. How does an ordinary person do extraordinary things? Measure what's in the heart. Let me just read this text and give you the full feel for the story, beginning in verse 6. When they came, this is, this is Samuel coming to, to Bethlehem. When they came, he looked at Eliab. This is Jesse's oldest son. And thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does, the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, brother too, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons, that's a big family, that's a lot of boys, pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, hey, are all your sons here? And he said, well, yeah, well, there remains yet the youngest, but see, he's out keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. We're not even going to sit down until he gets here. And he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Any babies out there in the family? I'm one. Yeah. Love it. I love it. Now, many observations about this very famous verse, verse 7. First observation, ironically, even Samuel still doesn't get it. He still judges by appearance. And Samuel's failure gives rise to one of the most famous verses in the Bible, verse 7. God does not see as we see. The one who knows the heart intimately, the one who prizes the heart, not the way a person appears. We instinctively value the young, the strong, the beautiful, the perfect body. But God sees the heart. And what is he looking for? He is looking for humility and for spiritual sensitivity. One writer said, this is good news and bad news for you and me. The good news is God looks at the heart. Therefore, we are set free from having to meet the world's criteria for being beautiful or successful. Which, by the way, is a target that is in constant motion. And because it is in constant motion, many of us are in a constant state of anxiety and depression. And you can be set free from that. The wisdom, this wisdom can be totally liberating. What's the bad news then? God looks at the heart. How much time do we spend cultivating our hearts? Your outward appearance may be top of the line. Your muscles and shape line may be enviable. But how much 
attention does your heart receive? Is there something there attractive to God? Here's another observation. Who is David? Who's David? And why is everyone surprised that God chooses him? Well, David's a small boy from a small town. He's very likely somewhere. He's somewhere between 10 and 14 years old. He's doing a servant's, a servant's job out in the field where he spent a great deal of time alone. And apparently in those lonely nights, even at such a young age, under the stars, something very wonderful and dynamic took place. He's learned to love and to connect with the God who has created him. Now you might wonder, why are David's physical features mentioned? Isn't that the whole point of this passage? To downplay physical appearance? So why is he called ruddy and handsome and beautiful and so forth? Well, I think what is said about David there is not meant to be complimentary. It is meant to highlight the fact that he is still a boy and is still weak in comparison to his older brother who has the frame of an opposing of an imposing warrior. Final observation about this verse. And let's roll this into helping us think about our own countries, this verse, our own country's chaos and turmoil. Not judging by appearance helps us as believers think about the terrible events this past week in Charlottesville. Events disturbing to all of us. It is disturbing when anyone uses violence to achieve political goals. And we ask, why is this happening? It's because, as a country, our common moral vision has collapsed. And now people are driven more by power, are driven more by ideology, than they are by ethics. As it relates to race, the scriptures make it abundantly clear that it is the heart that matters and not physical distinctions. We should be very clear what the Bible says about the sin of racism. And there's a great and very clear example from the book of Acts. In chapter 17, Paul is giving an evangelistic message in Athens, Greece. And his audience includes the leading secular philosophers of that day, that city. And they had assumed racial superiority. And they viewed all other races as barbaric and inferior. And in the middle of his attempt to lead them to Jesus, Paul deals with their idol of racial superiority. He says that we, he made the case that all races were what? All races were created from one man. They have the same creator, thus we are all connected. We are all made in his image and every human life has infinite value and worth. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul argued the gospel shatters the racial barriers that separate people. 
And he also said that it is a terrible sin to knowingly do anything that supports those barriers. When Peter sought to do just that, Paul sternly rebuked him publicly for losing his grasp on the gospel. Galatians 2.14 My friend, let me see I'm fine as my friend. I just, just saw this this morning. And I hope I can find it here. Oh, it's looking at the wrong side. My friend from Doug Brown, my friend Doug Brown, who I was with in East Asia, his uh, organization helped uh, organize our trip to be over there. He posted this on Facebook this morning. I thought it was so relevant. He said, I just came back from the Ethnic Enrichment Festival in Kansas City with two of my Chinese friends. There were over 60 cultures from almost as many countries as the festival with thousands of people. It was refreshing, harmonious, polite, and lots of good food. Doug said, I realize that if we get away from the bombastic, polarizing media and actually spend time with people, especially from other cultures, it is amazing how we can get along if we give ourselves to learn from each other. It is from that posture then we need to deal with the radical fringe elements of society. I am reminded of an old gold miner saying, if you go into the mine looking for dirt, you're going to find dirt. But if you don't go into the mine looking for dirt, you go in looking for gold. That's what gold miners do. The gold is in every person. That gold is the image of God. The image of God is not erased, but rather it has been defaced by sin. Let's look for the gold in every person in the midst of the dirt. And then let's share the life-giving, life-restoring gospel of Jesus Christ, who came to the broken, lost, and sinful in order to make us whole again. I believe those are wise words for Christians in the days that we live in. And we should look at folks on the fringes on the right and folks from fringes on the left and see them through the prism of not power primarily, not ideology primarily, but see them through the prism of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which can redeem and can save. I share this because I think it's powerful to understand that in our days, it is the gospel that has the solution for our culture's greatest problems. We as Christians must learn how to understand it, be convinced of it, and then be looking for ways to articulate it when God gives us opportunity in our worlds. Okay, I think it'd be appropriate right now just to take a moment and let's stop. And let's pray for exactly this. Let's pray for peace in our culture and that we as believers could lead the way in racial reconciliation and racial harmony. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel that transforms and changes. A gospel, Father, where political power is not seized, but where political power is emptied. And we see that, Father, in the weakness of the cross. Spiritual power, but emptied 
Lord, of, of, of power of this world. But so powerful from the standpoint of spiritual life. Father, we pray for peace. We pray for peace in our culture. And help us as believers to lead the way. And particularly when we can in the area of racial harmony and racial reconciliation. Thank you that the gospel separates all barriers. Father, I remember the little song that I grew up singing as a child. Red, yellow, black, and white. All are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. Father, let us in this day as the body of Christ to lead the way, to speak with confidence and authority to the issues, the great issues of our culture, the challenges coming, Lord, from every possible vantage point on the political spectrum. But, Father, let us keep grounded in what can really redeem and change. For the glory of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Look at the third point, if you would. Here's our third point. Is to make leaders and followers and pastors from ordinary people. This is an application for you as a church. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 8, God has said this to David through Nathan the prophet. He said, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. David was an ordinary person who did extraordinary things. You know, if you look around here, you may have noticed that our leaders are getting older. Have you noticed that? Not all of them. Most of them are getting older. And you here that are in the next generation, you are going to be a part of bringing new leadership into this church. What will you value? What standards will you use as you select new leaders? Fewer decisions will be more important. Whether it's a church or social club or country, who we select as leaders is vitally important. I mentioned the word ordinary because this word captures David's humble beginnings. Now, does God revel in being ordinary for ordinary's sake? No, that's not the point. David would go on and do extraordinary things. In the future, you may select leaders with terrific academic backgrounds, or tremendous speaking skills, or charismatic personalities. Denying a gift, a skill, or a talent for the sake of appearing ordinary is not the point. It's not the same as being humble. False humility is like wearing the same shirt inside out. It's still pride because you're focused on self. But the point is this, is what will impress you? As you select leaders for your future, what will wow you? What will impress you? If you are primarily wowed by degrees or talents or personalities and do not look for a humble heart, a spiritually sensitive heart, you will miss God's leader for you. Now, on the other hand, if you are a highly gifted individual, that's great. Don't be ashamed of it. But neither put your trust in it. 
Paul was a leader with tremendous academic background and natural talents. But he learned to be humble. Be humble so God can lift you up. On the other hand, if you're ordinary, if you lack gifts, talents, or academic backgrounds, the story of David means that does not exclude you from leadership in God's church. That's the lesson of David. Now look at the fourth point. Point four. Don't limit what God can do through you. Look at verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Here's an incredible irony. The most humble people are in actuality those who do the greatest things. The most ordinary among us, at least in the way we view our own capacities, accomplish the most for the kingdom of God. Why? Because they do not see themselves as anything special. Therefore, they focus on the power of God in them. This picks up on the theme that Nick mentioned two weeks ago. How can we do extraordinary things for God? How can ordinary people do this? Through His Spirit, His Spirit in us. This is where our power is. The power to love, to serve, to witness. Saul had glimpses of this. But now David receives the Spirit in connection with his anointing. If we believe we are extraordinary in ourselves, we will quench the Spirit. We must empty ourselves of self-sufficiency. We must ask the Spirit to crucify our pride and become ordinary in one sense that we might trust in God's power. This truth that God works against the proud but raises up the humble is a major theme of this book. It was laid out in the very beginning through Hannah's beautiful prayer. And if you read all the way to the end of 1st and 2nd Samuel, you'll see this truth played out in David's life and in Saul's life. And so the question to this point is, do you believe God has a plan for you and can use you to do great things for him? Don't dismiss that as impossible or unlikely or for some other time or is a great idea but could not involve me the time is now today is the day we need God's spirit to rush on us in a fresh way and we need new Davids and Samuels and Hannahs to be raised up in this day our day by the way is eerily like their day the need is no less For Samuel's and Hannah's and David's to be raised up. The kingdom of God is afoot and it's moving. Will you see it and ride the wave? Or will you stay on the safety of the shoreline? Here's the last thing. Our fifth and final point. And that's to deal with your dark side. How does an ordinary person... Do extraordinary things, you must deal with your dark side. This is something Saul never did. Saul was not a reflective man. 
Saul was not self-aware. There were powerful impulses and drives below the surface that he never identified. He never addressed. Look at verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Even the attendants can see what's going on, while Saul can't. Let our Lord now commend your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. Okay, that's confusing. Let me try to break this down a little bit. What's happening here? First, I don't think the removal of God's spirit means that Saul has lost his salvation. The scriptures say that Saul's heart was changed. I would place him, in my opinion, I would place him in the category of a true but a troubled believer. And the spirit had come on Saul, as it did on Samson, so that they were able to accomplish specific tasks. But now, because of Saul's disobedience, that spirit leaves. With David, we read it's a little different because it says it came from onto him from that day forward. But in Saul's case, he is about to lose more than just his kingdom. In failing to deal with his dark side, he begins to fall apart mentally. Part of the cause of this is God taking away his spirit and sending a tormenting one in its place. Some Bible versions call this an evil spirit. The ESV there says harmful, but it can also imply or be translated misery or miserable. I do not believe this is a d- demonic spirit. It just wouldn't make sense. One commentator wonders if it is an angel of judgment, an angel of judgment bringing misery. That seems more likely to me, since God does not tempt anyone, nor is he the source of evil. In Romans 1, it says, this is helpful, I think. In Romans 1, it says that we can reach a point of rejecting God in this life that moves us into divine judgment. Meaning that God gives us over to even greater sin. God no longer strives against us to keep us from moving in the wrong direction. It's like an exasperated parent after years of pleading, simply saying, okay, you want to go that direction, go ahead. It's clear I cannot change your mind. And the child then experiences the natural consequences. They lose and they forfeit that natural protection and wisdom that a parent gives. This is what I think is happening to Saul in relation to God. And yes, indeed, God actively works against Saul. This is what the Bible teaches. God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. But he actively works against the proud. This is what Saul's become. The same commentator, Tim Chester, notes that from this point forward, Saul becomes emotionally unstable. He becomes increasingly paranoid. And interesting, the proposed solution is a form of musical therapy. 
And lo and behold, that brings the boy David into the very royal court of Saul. And we're going to see how David and Saul actually built a very close relationship for a time. Like father and son. Here's the point. Saul began humbly. He did not seek this position. He did not seem to have wanted it. He was an ordinary person in many respects. But after some early military successes, pride began to settle in. And he never dealt with his dark side. Yes, ordinary people can struggle with jealousy, insecurity, paranoia, anger, and rage. The true person of Saul, if you're kind of feeling sorry for him, the true character of Saul will tragically climax in chapter 21 with Ahimelech the priest. We'll get there soon enough and we'll confront that terrible, terrible tragedy. To be used of God, friends, you have to deal with your dark side. The impulses, the motives, the drives that do not come from God. But rather come from competition, the need to justify your worth, insecurity, or an unhealthy need for approval. Friends, to this day, I continue to address my dark side. It is there. And I must lean on His grace. And part of my motivation is seeing the awful outcomes of this not taking place. And the outcomes in marriages, the outcomes in families with parents and children, the outcomes in churches, and even the outcomes of pastors who do not address their dark side. You might ask the question, how do we do this? Please, just Stick around and come back. Because when we get to David, he is going to show us how to address our darker selves in a way uh, unlike any psychotherapist could do. He's going to show us how to tell the truth to ourselves. So, to restate these five points, how do ordinary people be used in extraordinary ways? Number one, be ready to move when God speaks. Number two, measure what's in the heart. Three, as a church, make followers, leaders, and pastors, or accept followers, leaders, and pastors from ordinary people. Number four, don't limit what God can do through you. And number five, deal with your dark side. We began this morning. We began this morning by saying that Israel, that First Samuel is a story of Israel's search for a king. And some years after David died, 400 years after David died, and still many hundreds of years before Christ, a prophet came into Israel's world. A prophet was raised up. A prophet by the name of Isaiah. And Isaiah spoke something about a future king. And he said this future king will be in the line of David. He will be a descendant of David. If you want to read along, page 575, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 5. Let me read what Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before Christ came. Isaiah 
saw in the future and wrote this. He said, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his lions, of his loins. How would you like to have a leader like that? Leading our country. Can you imagine a leader like that? This was the promise of a coming king in the future. When Jesus came to this earth and began his ministry, before he began his ministry, he listened to the message of John the Baptist, and along with other ordinary folk, he himself received John's baptism. And when he did, the Holy Spirit descended on him in the bodily form of a dove and anointed him. And then an audible voice spoke from heaven saying, This is my Son with whom I am well pleased. Where do those words come from? Those words come from 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. They were the same promise that God gave to David. That there will be a King David coming from you who will rule my people forever. What was God the Father saying about Jesus the Son in that affirmation? He was saying, here he is. Here is the king. Here is the Messiah that Isaiah foresaw in the future. This is him. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the one we have always searched for. He too was an ordinary king born in a manger from David's hometown, Bethlehem. A simple, humble leader that God raised up. And what Jesus accomplished was extraordinary. And he continues today to do extraordinary things through ordinary people like you and like me. Let's pray. Father, through your spirit, I pray that something that you said this morning would bring life to those who don't know you, who are not connected to you, and would renew the hearts and the spirits of those that are. That, Father, we might this week experience your power in our lives, working through ordinary people. Father, thank you for these examples, but thank you primarily for the extraordinary work of Jesus who in his death defeated sin, defeated everything that works against us. Father, thank you that he is the king that we've been searching for. He is the leader that we've always desired and longed for. Pray that we would be more vitally and more deeply connected to him as individuals, but also as a corporate body as well, being faithful to him. And now, Father, in response to your word, 
Lead us to give you our hearts, to give you from the first of our resources, to give you our prayers, to give you our affection as we respond now to your spoken word. Through Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.